Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists who spend our lives asking tough questions to experts who really know their stuff so you don't have to. This week we're talking about the NHS crackdown on pills for depression. There's new guidance published for doctors which orders them to prescribe things such as group therapy or exercise instead of just offering antidepressants in the first instance. Interesting. As ever, we'd like to know what you think. If you have a question or comment, you can tweet us using the hashtag MedicalMindField or email us on health at mailonsunday.co.uk. I must say, as anyone who's been following the story over the last few years with antidepressant use, more and more people being prescribed them, but increasing awareness of the downsides of taking antidepressants, including recognition that you can actually become dependent on them so you can't stop. It's not that surprising that health chiefs have now told GPs they must consider other things first before giving patients antidepressants, unless they specifically request the pills. Completely. It's been a long time coming. I mean, this is the first change to the guidance with regards to antidepressants in 12 years, which does seem to be a kind of a bit of a delay, given that we talk about it so much. I'm interested in the timing. Obviously, after the pandemic, you know, things were heading in this direction anyway, Mm. but more people are being diagnosed with depression than ever before. So pre-COVID, it was roughly one in 10 adults, and now it's one in six. The issue of antidepressants and depression and anxiety and all the other things that they are prescribed for is something that we've covered quite recently. Our own resident GP, Dr Ellie Cannon, revealed um, during her slot on this morning that she took antidepressants for anxiety and had done for many, many years. Uh, She wrote about it and said, interestingly, that she tried other approaches such as psychotherapy and it didn't suit her. It didn't fit into her life and that she could take the tablets and just get on. And, And she said, live her best life. And, and mm. she, she didn't want to, to, I mean, she does exercise, I, I know that, but, um, you know, she, she didn't want to do other, other methods. She wanted the tablets. But our columnist Sarah Vine wrote on Wednesday that although she took antidepressants for depression for many, many years and that it did help, that she wished she had explored other options because, in fact, she's still on a very low dose because she can't stop taking them due to these terrible withdrawal symptoms. She's written before about that, hasn't she? How she suffered side effects and withdrawal symptoms. And and it is a real problem. And there's thousands of people out there who every time we write about this will say, I've suffered for years and this isn't talked about enough. But I do think as somebody who has myself taken antidepressants, that in fact, the overwhelming majority of people who are on them will find either they are beneficial or they have no effect, that they don't cause side effects or withdrawal symptoms. So I think on balance, it is still the minority that have these negative effects. And of course, it's all very well to say, you know, offer patients an exercise course or a gardening class or tell them to have psychotherapy. When are those things really going to be available? Well, exactly. You know, I mean, I remember you wrote for us about the fact that you were offered a course of psychotherapy um, at the start of some kind of treatment and and, uh, three years later... Someone called and Two said, do you later, want your appointment? They, they, And also, yeah, well, I mean, besides the point that by the time they got round to calling me to offer the appointment, I was, I hate to say it, but better. But also, 
they offered me an appointment that was I'd have to spare two hours once a week and they could only do between 11 and four or something, mm. um, which I might sound like I'm being spoiled. But for most working people, it's not that practical to take quite a large chunk out of your working day to go and have your therapy. And some people might not feel comfortable to say to their employer that that's what they're doing. Mm. Well, exactly. Well, look, I think let's let's speak to Sarah Vine first. Sarah, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. You wrote uh, last week that uh, although you, you you called antidepressants a lifesaver that, that, that it really helped you, you supported the new guidance that said that doctors should explore other options before offering them to patients. Were you offered any other options or were you offered pills straight away? Were you were you given therapy or advice to exercise? Yeah, and the thing about saying to a depressed person, oh, you need to exercise, is that sometimes you, can, you can't even contemplate getting out of bed. Mm. So saying, oh, well, could you just go to the gym is not really an option because if you can't put one foot in front of the other, then the thought of actually doing some exercise is just insulting, to be honest. The thing about this is that exercise and nutrition and meditation and all of these things are things that you can build up to. And, and the where the drugs work really well is in dealing with the sort of acute phase of the depression which is the sort of I can't, I can't move phase, and they will help you get out of that. But what needs to then happen is, is that then the other treatments need to kick in so that you can look after yourself yeah. better, and that doesn't happen. I guess my question is, in, if you had been told that you had to wait for psychotherapy or, or been told to try mindfulness in the first instance and not offer the pills, what do you think would have happened? Well, I did do all of those things. I did do all of those things. I was always very good at sort of doing all the yoga and all that kind of stuff that you're supposed to do. But sometimes depression is, is actually physical. You know, and lots of people, I think if you talk to people who have had depression, they will tell you that it's not just it's not just a head thing it's a physical thing your body just you know can't function so i think the, i think the thing about the pills is they have they do have a really important function in the sense that they allow people who are at that stage to come out of that phase and they do help that mm. and they do allow you to sort of as it were come out of the acute phase but it, but depression is a chronic illness it's something it's like you know being diabetic or having a heart condition or any of those things it doesn't go it's not something you can just cure it will always dog you it's interesting that you say that because there are experts and, and some research that now suggests that it, it should be treated much like diabetes and that because I, I know one of the problems for you has been that you've not been able to stop taking the antidepressants and they would suggest or some research suggests that people shouldn't try and people should just stay on antidepressants forever there is a problem with that and I think that it depends why you're on them in the first place. I mean, there are some people who do need to be, you know, if you've got bipolar disorder or you're, if you're schizophrenic, obviously you, you will always need to be on these certain types of medications. But if you are somebody who has previously not had any problems with mental illness and has had a sort of maybe series of events happen that have created the problem, then the problem with being on antidepressants for a very long time is that they do alter your mm. emotional behaviors you mentioned a friend who you were unable to to support yes. that was fascinating so, i thought exactly and you don't really notice it at first you absolutely don't notice it at first you think that you're completely fine but what happens is is that because they are an emotional anesthetic effectively and they and they basically take away the pain that you're feeling or some of the pain that you're feeling it sort of works 
on the bad stuff, but it also works on the good stuff. And that's why I think a lot of people experience you know, side effects as being on, on antidepressants, you know, low sex drive. The kind of highs go as well as the lows, as it were. Sarah, can I ask you, would it not be the case that the long waiting list for therapy, as you've also mentioned, may mean that it's it's not necessarily easier for a GP, but they're simply trying to offer something in the absence of nothing? Do you not think that that's kind of more of the problem and therefore this guidance... So it may be wishful thinking. It, it may be, you know, this guidance in theory may be great, but actually in practice, is it not going to leave a lot of patients with nothing? Well, I mean, that's, that's the danger with it. But the point is that if you're, if NICE are saying this, you know, you would imagine that, that there would then be some sort of follow through in strategy for treating people with mental illness that actually involves funding for different types of treatments. And, and the thing is, all the pressure is on the GPs. And actually, it's not fair because if, if I went along to a GP and I, and I was very depressed and I said I was very depressed and they said, well, actually, I can't prescribe you antidepressants because I've been told that you've got to go and run around the park. And then I did something to myself. That GP would be responsible or they would feel responsible. So they're in an impossible position. But what what NICE is saying, and I think what's, what's so important about what NICE is saying, is that they are they are actually accepting that there is a big problem with mental health in this country for whatever reason and that actually we need to think about how we treat it in a much more holistic and bigger way because at the moment the tools that we give our medical professionals are I don't think are enough and therapy and all those sort of things are very accessible to people with money and time but if you don't have money and time then actually you can't get them at all that's a really big issue the thing i worry about with this conversation is is almost the risk of undermining mental health problems in a way because you know if we're saying that they are as serious as something like diabetes well there's no doubt that you would take medication and indeed you know this but diabetics is a similar are, are advised to exercise as well you know they're advised to, to go on diets and exercise well I mean, that, the point about something like a heart, so say you've got a heart condition or diabetes or any of these sort of long-term metabolic conditions, you know, yes, of course, we've got, we've got pills that can, that can help with them. But it's also, there are other things that you need to do. It's not, it's a sort yeah. of, you know, as, a, as a, to, I don't want to sound like an idiot, but like a, it's sort of a, a holistic approach. You need to just, you can't. You know, you've got to look at the whole life. I guess it's, it's got to be the way it's couched so that you're not just saying yeah. to somebody, I'll oh, just go for a run. Exactly. And also a lot of people, you know, sometimes sometimes people have mental health issues because their lives are too much for them. You know, yeah. they're either working too hard or they're in an abusive relationship or they're, you know, doing things they shouldn't do. And actually sometimes if you change, if you look at the causes of why, and that's why cognitive therapy is so helpful because what it will do is it will show you how to look at your life and to say, Okay, this is uh, these are the things that I'm doing that are you know yeah. acts of self harm or whatever. They're not making me happy. I need to change that. And 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 so you're sort of saying, you know, you you're not a completely you know, you're not helpless in all of this. You can be your own agent and your own advocate. And there are things that you can do. And you don't just have to be on on pills that might make you feel like you're not yourself, which they did to me. That's all I'm saying. Sarah, uh, what do you think really helped you overcome uh, depression, or is it is it something that you still still struggle with? My problem is is severe anxiety, which is slightly different from depression. It's uh, um, it's kind of it's just sort of the general well the whole time. And um, okay. but I've always had this. I mean, I've I you know 
I, I started losing my hair when I was 16 because I, I was so anxious and stressed. You know, I, this is the person I think, you know, I've always been. And, and of course, it, it comes and goes like everything. Uh, some, sometimes, it's best, sometimes it's best, sometimes it's not. I've always had huge uh, it, problems with self-esteem. And, you know, and the difficulty with depression and anxiety and all of these things is that <clears throat> for a, lo- a long time, I didn't do anything about it because my, my, you know, my mantra is always, well, you know, you're not living in Afghanistan, love. So, you know, stop being depressed because you've got nothing to be depressed about. But the truth is, and when I had uh, CBD for this, you know, they did sort of try and explain to you that that even if you, you know, even if you are essentially not in a war zone and there isn't an obvious reason why you should feel so miserable, it's okay to feel miserable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That, 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 that your emotions and your depression and your anxiety you know, you can't compare yourself to everybody else. So it's very difficult. Um, mm. It's one of the difficult things about the, these mental health issues is, is that you do, I mean, for me, it's all bound up in a lot of guilt and feelings of inadequacy. And I think I will always have that. I mean, I'm 54 now and I really, I still feel like that. So so I think it'll, it's, like I said, I think it's a chronic condition. I think it's something that will always be with me. And I just have to learn to manage it as best I can. And things like, you know, not use, not drinking too much, uh, not eating, not comfort eating. You know, you have to just slightly help yourself a little bit. And that is really hard to do if you're, if you're feeling miserable. Yeah. But the good thing is that, you know, nice is having a conversation about mental, about people's mental health which i think is really important because for too long we sort of separated the two and the two are not separate at all people you know people's brains are their bodies and their bodies are their brains and if your emotional landscape is wrong and difficult it will affect the rest of you and affect your body and affect everything and it will affect the other thing is is it will affect those around you i've had quite a lot of emails from that piece from partners of people who have mental health issues and it's interesting how much they suffer and i think we forget that because if you're living with somebody who's got depression it is really difficult these are not issues that can be taken in isolation they do have they do have serious repercussions and and and, and of course if somebody so if somebody becomes so mentally ill that they can't really cope with work and stuff Very like often. that all the people that you see on the street you know who are homeless they're not mm. they're not there because they're yeah. bad people they're probably they're there because they just they just can't function and well, these things they can happen to anyone can't they exactly. you kind of think you know, with, with mental illness it. yeah. it's so common that it's yeah. uh, but they're for the grace of god yeah and i do think that everybody at some stage in their life will have a moment where they'll need some help or need to talk to somebody professional or just you know and and that and there's nothing wrong with that you know that's that's and we just have and i think it should just be much more accessible to many more people and i think it would be in the long term it would be a, a sensible investment yes. really because you know like i said you would you know fewer people would end up getting themselves in impossible situations and it would end up costing the nhs a lot less in the long absolutely well look i also think it's important that people like you keep talking about this as as well as people like in 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 nice Uh, so thanks very much for being so candid um and uh, for spending time with us so it seems that what sarah is saying is really that it's important to explore all the options when it comes to treating uh, such a serious problem and not just look at medical approaches, also look at lifestyle. And I, I've spoken to psychiatrists who say the same thing, that it frustrates them that they'll give people medication knowing full well 
that it's going to paper over some of the symptoms and perhaps of a, a crisis. But what it isn't going to do is resolve their life problems. If you send people back to their complicated, dreadful lives that are making them ill, then you know, you're not really helping them at all. And actually that psychiatrists should be doing the same thing, that psychiatrists should be, you know, offering lifestyle advice, essentially. I think the difficulty is it's like which medical professional is going to be tasked with having those conversations that aren't necessarily strictly in their remit because they're not, well, they're not medical, really. They're about somebody's life. It's having a chat with somebody, it's getting to know someone. And ordinarily that would be your GP, wouldn't it? But as Sarah was saying especially given the current um, circumstances that, that GPs find themselves in. I, I just don't think that there's going to be room for those types of conversations. Well, let's talk to a, a GP who's who's seen this issue from both sides as a patient and a doctor, uh, our resident columnist, Dr Ellie Cannon. Thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. Ellie, what do you think about the new NICE guidance uh, that suggests that GPs should prescribe lifestyle approaches or psychotherapy before medication for depression? Well, firstly, I think I don't really feel um, it's hugely new. If you look at the NICE guidelines as they are currently for depression and also for some of the other mental illnesses, including anxiety, it does already mentioned the lifestyle approaches so looking at diet and exercise and then also looking at therapy and certainly that's always been the case and I think a good GP and a good psychiatrist would always be looking across the board at all three but I think it is certainly something that needs to be spoken about in context and the context of a health service where often therapy isn't easily accessible. And I think that's incredibly important. Ellie, do you think that there is a risk here that, as you said, therapy isn't always accessible? Do you think there's a risk, therefore, that if if patients are now not able to be prescribed antidepressants as a first line treatment, that they will just be there'll be nothing that, that can be offered to them? Yeah, I think I think that's always a risk. And I think the important thing that I see as a GP on the ground is that Many people are not able to access therapy, not simply because there aren't therapists available privately or on the NHS, but actually because they're holding down two jobs or they have caring responsibilities or therapy just isn't for them and they don't like the idea of it. So therapy isn't always available for lots of different reasons. And Experts have to be very careful about not just looking at data, but also looking at real world experience and real life experience. And therapy isn't for everybody. And I often offer patients therapy and lifestyle approaches and people choose to have medication because that's the time in their life that they're at and that's what they feel suits them. Um, And that may be because people want a quick fix or they may want a Band-Aid over their problems. But that's personal choice to have that. And if that's what people want to get on with their lives, like they may want something to quickly sort out an infection, then that's personal choice to choose that over therapy. Ellie, uh, talking of personal choice, you've actually written for us about taking antidepressants for your own problems with anxiety. And you've written about how you found them incredibly helpful. 
have you tried any other um, treatments such as the therapy, the exercise, that kind of thing? And, and what have you found that you've gained the most benefits from? I certainly have tried different types of therapy, both psychoanalytical therapy and also more solution-focused therapy. So what people commonly talk about is CBT, where you look at your sort of broken thoughts that lead somebody like me to become very anxious um, and the behaviours and sort of looking at that. It's not something I have ever been able to fully engage with whether that is because of lifestyle and being too busy or because I was at such a low ebb that actually I just couldn't engage with it. So I've never, in all honesty, seen through therapy and done what you're supposed to do because it really does take a lot of patient engagement and being very sort of proactive, which I haven't really ever done. Probably we should all do CBT when we feel well so we can learn the approaches for when we don't feel well. And then in terms of lifestyle, certainly I admit that I feel better if I exercise and I feel better if I do all of these different things. But again, if you are at a low ebb, taking the decision, which seems so trivial, to go for a walk to make yourself feel better or to engage in something is actually very challenging. And I think that that is very challenging, particularly for people with depression, to pull themselves, not out of the depression, but to pull themselves out of their acute symptoms and take that proactive approach. That in itself can be a challenge. During all this coverage, of course, the subject of side effects has Mm. come up again. Uh, what's your take on all of that? I mean, people have talked about, and Sarah Vine, who uh, wrote this week about her own, you know, I mean, she's she's been unable to stop because when she completely stops, although she's on a very low dose, she gets terrible, terrible side effects. Look, it would be dishonest if I didn't say there were side effects of medications. Of course there are, and there's definitely side effects of antidepressants, and I've experienced those myself, and I've also experienced withdrawal side effects though I have managed to come off them, of course there are side effects and of course they work differently in different people and I could line up for you a huge number of patients for whom I've prescribed an antidepressant and it hasn't helped but also I could line up a lot for whom it has and that's the difficulty with antidepressants versus say an antibiotic or a blood pressure pill. Generally speaking those medications do work in the majority of people whereas it's not the case with antidepressants. They don't have the high efficacy rates that other medications Mm. do and they do absolutely have side effects but it's interesting isn't it the psychology of what we are prepared to tolerate as side effects for physical health ailments versus what we are prepared to tolerate for psychiatric ailments. And I think that's very interesting and that feeds into this stigma of taking medication for mental illness. Mm. Do you think anything's going to change because of this new guidance? Well, there, I know for a fact, working through the pandemic, being a patient through the pandemic and being someone who looks after a patient during the pandemic, that we have a problem in the UK of a lack of therapists, both privately and within the NHS, obviously much more starkly within the NHS. And we have fantastic therapists who are there, but they are incredibly overworked. And even when people try and access help privately, there are massive waiting lists. 
So it's a bit like the GP crisis. It's all very well top down saying we need to offer people therapy. But if this wait for therapy is nine to 12 months and then there are staffing crises within that, it's not really a viable option. Ellie, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to hear your insight. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Well, I, quite, I quite like the idea of having CBT when you feel well in order to equip you with uh, all you need in order to weather the storms when they happen. I think it's, I think it's, to me, that I saw your eyes widen slightly at that. Because this, it, here lies the crux of the problem. If you have someone who presents to the GP, and usually if someone has a mental health problem, it's taken them a long time to admit they have a mental health problem and then even longer to present to a medical professional, they're not going to be well at that point. And but that's why you should have the CBT just as preventatively. A part of, yeah, well, it's it's not a prevention, is it? Because CBT teaches you to step back and have some perspective and to realise that you know your panic attack isn't you gonna you're not gonna die and yeah. you know it gives you some kind of tips and tools, doesn't it? Whereas I often think that those things, when you're in it, might be less effective than when you're out of it. And I don't know. I, I actually not. I had some CBT. It's interesting because I think about things now in hindsight that I do and the way I think about things that are quite, knowing what I know about CBT, are quite CBT-ish. And I think, oh, maybe I did learn something, but I didn't, at the time I wasn't conscious that I was absorbing it, if that makes sense. Well, anyway, it's all quite wishful thinking, isn't it? Because, you know, as you You as can't even said, get CBT you if you're, CBT. you know, in crisis. Yeah. In a crisis, wait another two years. And then, uh, and then there'll probably be another staffing crisis and you'll have to have a trainee or something. But yes, I mean, it's it's all about trying to find some balance. And I, I thought what Sarah had to say about, I suppose, taking some responsibility yourself, mm. it feels like the wrong thing to say in this in this situation. But if people know there are things or try and find things to help themselves they are more likely to recover with or without medication. I'm sure I can't whip out any research to prove that right now, but, I, I, you know, I'm sure that's the case. It's, it's on a spectrum, isn't it? And I think we have to be really careful when we talk about those kind of interventions and, and things that you can do and be proactive. You know, yes, if you have perhaps mild depression, mm. um, you know, if you're in the early stages of a mental health problem. Well, I always uh, remember uh, working with Kevin Braddock, uh, the writer, on his book about his suicide attempt. And one of the things that he talks about is in his recovery was going for a walk and looking up at the sky. Mm. And it seems like such a banal you know, almost cliche thing to say. But also, you know, sometimes I do walk out of the office with a windowless, <laughs> skyless office when I'm feeling, you know, put upon and uh, and look up at the sky. And, and, you know, it can be helpful. But, you know, I mean, Kevin spent many years in, in recovery from quite severe mental illness. Mm, mm. And uh, there was a big part of his recovery that was non-medical 
and learning how to take life at a slower pace perhaps as well i think it's it's also individual isn't it because that is brilliant that that and fantastic that that worked for him but you might get somebody in exactly the same position who actually feels that that's that's just not going to do anything but well, i also think that in his case it was a rock bottom type mm. situation and you know hopefully most people would av- avoid getting to that dreadful dreadful stage and um, so maybe the only way was, you know, to completely overhaul his life. Mm. Ultimately, is... GPs just need to have really thorough conversations with patients, don't they? And talk to them not just about what treatments are on offer, but also about what they think might be contributing to the way that they're feeling and what they might be able to do that mm. would change that situation. Yeah. Well, they have these social prescribers, don't they? I, I, I find it hard to believe they exist. Someone, someone at a GP surgery. I mean, Ellie says that she has someone who tells people to go and do gym gardening. lessons or gardening. Yeah. I, I just I can't believe it actually happens, but apparently. Apparently it does. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.